0: Welcome, and let's first talk compliance. I'm Catherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager at First Healthcare Compliance. Thanks for tuning in. This show is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high-quality, complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a moment to provide a review on Google, Facebook, or iTunes. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Today we are speaking with Dr. Chris Hobson, Chief Medical Officer for Orion Health. The topic of today's program is why payers can't ignore the interoperability rules and should comply sooner rather than later. The interoperability and patient access final rule approved by CMS and ONC is intended to advance patient participation through access to their health information and to drive advanced interoperability and innovation across the US. These rules will have significant impact on payer organizations currently facing unprecedented times with multiple pressures brought on by the COVID-19 pandemic uncertainty as to the likely model for healthcare funding and delivery going forward, and calls to reduce inequity within the healthcare system, just to name a few. The shift to patient-centric care is upon us and the call for payers to comply is urgent. This interview will discuss the new interoperability rules and the impact to payers, where payers should start on their journey towards interoperability, and why payers should comply with these rules sooner rather than later. So hello, Dr. Hobson. Thank you so much for joining me today on First Talk Compliance.
1: Thank you, Catherine. It's a real pleasure to be here.
0: Thank you. Well, the pleasure's all mine. It's been nearly two years since HHS announced its interoperability rules. What are the new interoperability requirements for payer organizations?
1: That's a great question, Catherine. There are three major rules, which are really technical technical pieces that have to be built, developed, offered. So originally the concept was on January the 1st, 2021, payers have to make um, access to the information they hold on the patient. So loosely that includes the clinical data about their care and things about their claims and claims history, they have to make that available via an API as of January 1, 2021, the API piece being important because that's what would enable an app on a phone to connect to this data. Also on January 1, 2021, they um, are required, again, to fulfill a technical requirement to provide access to their provider directory so the idea there is I'm um, I need to see a healthcare provider I need to know both you know I've got a heart problem do they deal with cardiology but also are they part of my payer's network so that access to that information via an API on your phone originally specified for January 20 January 1 2021 January 1, 2022, the payers are required to participate in payer-to-payer data exchange. So the idea of that is, if I change from one payer to another, and as I change, the information that's held about me by the first payer has to be exchanged with the second payer that I'm moving to. Those are the core dates, um, but due to the COVID and uh, the stress that everybody's under, CMS has announced that it won't actually enforce those rules until July of 2021. So that leaves payers with, even even with that extension, it leaves payers with less than, you know, it's about 10 months from now to, to when they have to comply. One other kind of compliance thing that may come up so as well as the patient access, the provider directory, the payer-to-payer data exchange. It's vague and not well spelled out, but there is the potential for the information blocking rule, um, which is actually due for implementation November, so very short time. It's uncertain to what extent payers need to be concerned about that. Um, and so that's just really in a vague thing, but my strong advice for payers is, is to think about the information blocking rule. And if it becomes important to them or apply to them, then they're ready for it.
0: Are these rules expected to alter the payer provider relationships? And what about payer consumer relationships? How how are these rules expected to alter these these, right. of these relationships?
1: Yeah. So let's start with the, actually start with the payer consumer relationship. So remember, so now as of July, 2021, you have a situation where every, at least in theory, every payer in the US is offering patients access to their data. That has to be a good thing. It encourages people to engage with their payer. Um, I think, so what you have to see is, so that's the base, bare minimum. I think there will be pressure on payers to come up with apps and models that actually, you know, even more encourage members to join with their themselves rather than their competitors. So in terms of the payer-consumer relationship, it will be more competitive. There'll be less possibility of people being locked in, and you know, data sharing should make it that the organizations are competing on the services they provide and not competing on access to the data. Um, So it's a key point. In terms of payer provider, I think that um, there will be more transparency. So patients will now know how much providers got paid. Patients will now know a lot more about what's happening. Um, In the kind of move, the general trend has been in the last few years for payers and providers to slowly, carefully get more close to each other, and this will certainly help. Um, As we go through the questions, you'll see that one option I'm recommending, but for consideration, not mandating, but one option is that for payers, if they participate in a local health information exchange, that will actually make it, that will improve their relationship with their providers and give them a mechanism to meet the rules. So payers and providers should come continue to come and work more closely together, and one solution to this would be joining the local HIE, which will have these technologies, and that may make life a lot easier for the payer.
0: You mentioned that the compliance deadline has been extended into 2021. Where should payers start on their journey towards interoperability to adhere to the new requirements placed upon them? Hmm.
1: So the way to think about this is sort of in two lanes. One obvious lane is you need to have access to the technologies that will be required, let's say in July 2021. So you need to, um, and the technologies that are part of this include, you know, the new fire standards, um, the US Common Data Set for interoperability. Um, OAuth 2, OpenID Connect is a bundle of technical standards that you somehow have to meet. Um, and in meeting that, part of the challenge to think about is a lot of that data is going to be currently sitting in your um, claim, as claims data in relatively unfriendly formats. Formats wasn't designed to easily pull that data and, and turn it into an API. So, one lane of the preparation is to look at the technical architecture that you have, whether you, do an assessment as to whether you have the data and whether you can meet the requirement. The second stream, let's call it strategic or, or business commercial stream. So, I think the, as a payer, I should already have a strategy around my member engagement. And so um, and if I don't I need one fairly quickly because this is going to up up the ante on having that um, From a strategic perspective. This is a multi-year initiative CMS and Owen so you can see out for the next two to three years at least the path is already mapped But how does this fit with your bigger picture strategy? You know, I assume that you want to continue doing CMS business as well as private payer and um, you know, you're going to have to work more closely with providers. You're going to have to find some money and some people to actually do all of this. So you need to have your strategic level up and running as well based on member engagement and things, good things like that. And you're also going to have to have a technical strategy where you're going to have to, to adopt a number of new technologies that you probably don't have. And you're going to have to fit them into your current environment.
0: What do you think that the top challenges payers will face along the way in adhering to these new interoperability guidelines?
1: So we've already mentioned the technical architecture so without going over that again because it's just the fact these are new technologies and they all need to be implemented. Um, One set of technologies I overlooked um, from the list so we go through that list. There's the OAuth 2, the OpenID Connect, the US Common Data Set for Interoperability, um, NCPDP for prescriptions, the HL7 FIRE. And the point I wanted to just uh, emphasize with FIRE is there are sub-projects. So in particular, the Da Vinci project, the payer data exchange, some of those aspects within FIRE, you need to have all of that, that's one challenge. Um, Second challenge again commercial resourcing and funding need to figure out how much this is going to cost How much benefit and whether you can add the resources? So you're going to need some technical resources Which you may already have in your organization or may not But these need to be people who are familiar with fire and in particular the da Vinci project and some of these other standards Perhaps you can upskill your existing staff the other thing is I'm I mean, I am a clinician, that's my background, but I think and exercises that we've done with payers have required a heavy amount of clinical consulting to understand where the data is, the format it is, and how that would be translated and made use of by a patient or a clinician. So we've got the technical, we've got the resources, funding, strategic, Also want to mention another challenge, which is hidden in this, but is really important. Um, There's the question about balancing privacy and security, especially privacy of the data. So the new rules and regulations include this provision around information blocking. To be fair, at the moment, information blocking rules apply to providers and um health IT vendors and they don't specifically mention payers but the more you look at it and think about it I think payers need to be well aware of information blocking and even that aside what's going to happen is patients will have um, access via apps mobile apps on their phones will have access through the API to pull their claims history and their their clinical data and all of that data that the um, payers currently hold. One um, detail in the rule is that payers and providers cannot specify that app that the patients will use. So for payers to be part of this uh, exercise, they will need to offer the data through the API and while I would be sorely tempted as a payer or as anyone in this I would be sorely tempted to say to members you need to use you know the Blue Cross Blue Shield app there is going to be a competitive marketplace out there payers are going to have to allow their data to be um, picked up by a third-party app that they don't know well and so balancing that it's been controversial I think it's a very good rule in many ways. It encourages what we call you know, liquid data. But there may, who knows exactly if some uh, app comes out there and gets very popular but doesn't handle the data in a secure fashion, we could end up in some rather potentially nightmare scenarios. So I think the advice to the payers is to stay close to these rules and, and be sure that their, um, their participation is, is to the letter of the law.
0: So the interoperability rules will make it easier for the patients to get more involved with their care and their access to their data, such as using you know whatever app they want, for example. So how does patient empowerment impact payer organizations?
1: Hmm. So first, let's talk about patient empowerment, and then and then segue to the payer interaction. So, okay. Patient empowerment, we know that an activated, engaged patient um, has better outcomes, is less likely to need to go to hospital, um, is and and or if they do go to hospital, stay for a shorter time. So patient engagement in their disease or condition and patient empowerment, which, you know, the ability to actually contribute to your um, decision making. So we, we understand now very well that when patients do have that kind of level of involvement, and decision-making, that that improves patient outcomes. From the payer perspective, <clears throat> I think it's fairly clear payers would like to encourage engaged patients because they'll be healthier and it's the right thing to do. So that's kind of the, um, the impact between all the different stakeholders being the patient and the payer. Now, the connection between those two is this FHIR API that we've been talking about, the APIs. So the rules give patients much better access. So patient can now access their information. But one thing that occurs to me, and I haven't seen it discussed, is the APIs are one way. So data is coming from the payer to me as a patient. If I see something there and I'm like, okay, I need to discuss this. Uh, Maybe it's not correct, or maybe I want to change something. The APIs are currently not. They don't enable patient back-to-payer discussion through this channel. So the patient would have to phone the payer, go and pay a visit or, or whatever as an alternative to actually be really empowered. They may be engaged, but there's a next level. Um, one downside just to be aware of with all of this is um, the Patients, you know, at the bottom end of the social um, social heap, so to speak, maybe they won't have, you know, patient, maybe they won't have an iPhone. <laughs> I'm told homeless people, if they have anything, they have an iPhone but or a, or a smartphone of some sort. But right. the point, point is some of those patients at the bottom of the pile may get missed. So it's that digital divide. And so I think that's another big picture thing to, to look at, we want more engaged members, and the APIs will help, but what are we doing about, because those people at the bottom of the socioeconomic, they're also the ones who tend to have the most healthcare interventions. So we want to make sure that patients who don't comply, that we do have some other mechanism for reaching them.
0: How do these interoperability rules align with the healthcare industry's shift toward value-based care?
1: So, there's some easy kind of observations to make about this, and then maybe a harder one. But the easy observation to make is that by making the data, you know, the, the buzzword is to make it more liquid, make it more readily available. And as we said, having engaged patients, for instance, so we anticipate that outcomes will be better and costs will be less. The patients engaged. Um, and knows much more about what they're doing. Um, A really good kind of big picture example is um, palliative care at the end of life. A lot of older people would prefer palliative care that emphasises quality of life and pain-free existence over being in a hospital intensive care unit with drips and drains and machines that go beep. So if we can do a good job of some of those patient Very patient-centered outcomes, those may also have the the happy um, side effect of actually it's a better patient experience and it costs a lot less money. So those are kind of the easy, easy observation. Another one is that the providers, when asked to participate in value-based care, the typical thing response is, well, yes, we'll do that, but we need data. So to do a fee for service. You see a patient, charge them $100, whatever, done. But with a value-based care model, um, you're looking at a patient over a year, you want to know the quality of care and all sorts of indicators. Having more liquid data should improve the ability of payers and provider organisations to do better things, care coordination, and like I said, that kind of ultimate aim for value-based care, which is improving outcomes and reducing cost. The harder thing is going to be to evaluate. So I think each year as you're, the population you've been caring for and you're looking at their, the outcomes you managed to achieve, the quality of care and the cost. So can we really leverage the, the, payer, the, the patient access APIs? Can we actually leverage some of these things in smart ways to do a better job? And I think that's, that's just going to take time and some careful thought.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to First Talk Compliance, brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complementary educational resources. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. My guest today is Dr. Chris Hobson, Chief Medical Officer for Orion Health. The topic of today's program is why payers can't ignore the interoperability rules and should comply sooner rather than later please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of first healthcare compliance on google or facebook you can follow us on instagram twitter and subscribe to our youtube channel where should payers prioritize their efforts to get their data in order to meet the new interoperability standards, what's a good place for
1: that? The patient access API, I think, without without a doubt, um, that's a new, a net new thing that they don't currently provide, and is going to require understanding the back end data in, in new ways, where it sits, and how to connect that back end data to the API. So, on the technical front definitely the patient access API is the right place to start the next one is the provider directory um, API although I think that payers already do work in that kind of space already so it should be fairly straightforward and then I think as we've said then we also as well as figuring out how we're going to comply with those things um, I think we also need to be looking at our strategy so what is the long-term with this? Where is this taking me? And make sure the whole organization is aligned with that.
0: What penalties do payers risk if they don't comply in time, if they're not compliant?
1: Well, they're putting at risk their business, um, their CMS business. So where they're administering Medicare plans um, of all sorts and child health information plans, um, basically they won't be able to bid for new work if they don't comply with these rules. So there's, in terms of the payers and the, the interoperability rules, just to clarify, what's at stake here is their ability to do CMS business. What's important, so as we were talking, the information blocking rules are a little bit vague as to what they mean for payers. But for providers, it's already been determined in terms of penalties, what they call civil and monetary penalties. So for providers and health IT vendors, if and obviously Orion Health is a health IT vendor. So if they don't comply with the information blocking rules, the current estimate is up to a million dollars per episode, and it's enforced by the OIG, the Office of Inspector General. So I think payers, as well as considering, concerning about their business model and, and so on, They also do need to keep a close eye on the information blocking rules. If it becomes clear that they are at risk, then um, there's a million dollars per episode and they've already figured out how they're going to enforce it. So I I think not being compliant is really not an option for anyone at this stage.
0: Well, what types of tools and solutions should payers leverage to make compliance Mm -hmm. as smooth as possible for themselves?
1: So two or three kind of streams on that front. They may, on the one one front, would be, okay. let's just meet these API uh, requirements. So let's just do the basic. And certainly, they could go to the market for vendor solutions. There's certainly out there that would simply do do that piece for you. My preference, I think, will work better in the long run is if they look at leveraging the HIE that's um, hopefully in their jurisdiction already and um, that will give them a longer term platform for interoperability that is less likely to be derailed by regulation changes and so on. Those are the two major tools they have and again you have to back that up with the knowledge. Um, your own technical resources or bring some in and your clinical resources or bring some in.
0: Well I wanted to thank you Thanks. so much for coming on our show today do you have any other advice or things that you might have thought of to share with us or to leave with us today?
1: I think just working through this as we've been just discussing it now, it makes it evident that the big thing Maybe there may be things you haven't thought of. So that is the biggest reason for starting now and rather than later. So so that, we've, we've already said it, but that would be a point to emphasize, I think we don't know what we don't know and until we get into doing this and making the technical decisions until we get started on that let alone the stakeholder engagement relationships until we started we're not going to know how how much of a mountain this is going to be to climb
0: yes i think that's always great advice okay well again i wanted to thank you so much for for being with us today so thank you so much very much appreciate it dr hobson
1: Thank you, Catherine. You're very, very welcome. It's a pleasure.
0: Pleasure's ours. And thanks to our audience for mm. tuning in to First Talk Compliance. You can learn more about our show on the program's page on healthcarenowradio.com and lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at FirstHCC or hashtag FirstTalkCompliance. You can also email me at Short at firsthcc.com. I'm Katherine Short of First Healthcare Compliance. Remember, compliance is the key to achieving peace of mind.